morning talk. <laughs> oh God! Every night, I, every night I'm up like frantically trying to make sense of some notes because I'm uh, neurotic when it comes to preparing. I'm not sure. Maybe Heather's not as neurotic as I am about preparing, but I am neurotic about it. And then I wake up and I look at these notes, and they first thing in the morning don't make any sense to me whatsoever. I'm like. <laughs> I have no idea what I was on about, but I'll give it my best shot. Just from the very global understanding that the Buddha's path is a, in many ways, a causational path, he asks us to look at the underlying causes and conditions that influence our behavior, influence the way we perceive the world. And uh, a very key uh, insight to this is that all thoughts and behaviors are activated, in fact, take shape in what he calls Vedana, which is roughly feelings. Before we have any uh, full-on thoughts, interpretations, behaviors, all of that actually in a, a wonderful sutta called the Mula Sutta, the Root Sutta, he says every thing in life takes shape and feelings. And what he means is that well before the sort of all the stories and all the things we're consciously aware of, there's this underlying tendency, feelings that arise. And he boils them down into three kinds. There's pleasant feelings, there's unpleasant feelings, and there's feelings that are kind of neutral. We don't notice any emotionally, any physically, any change whatsoever. And so depending upon those underlying, I'd say psychobiological unconscious states in largely in the body that arise, everything we do is formed, influenced from those underlying states. They precede thought, they precede action. So from one perspective, if we want to change in life any re uh, addictive reactive tendency, uh, a, a very straightforward way to do it is developing what's called distress tolerance. Distress tolerance is very big in dialectical behavioral therapy, and the idea is very simple. People tend to avoid situations that make them feel physically stressed out. <laughs> it's not the world, you don't have to be Einstein to realize that, and yet, um, when you do see that, there's this profound realization that if you can simply learn to be, focus on what's going on in your body, the underlying, uh, Vedana psychobiological states that are nonverbal, if you can pay attention to those and tolerate those, then all of the reactive tendencies in your life begin to mitigate. A famous example that comes to mind is uh, Ajahn Sumedha was working with uh, someone who had an addiction to donuts. And they said to uh, Sumedha, uh, I figured out what to do. I figured out 
this is how I'm not going to eat addictively my donuts anymore. I'm going to avoid walking by the donut store. And Tomato nodded and said, well, yeah, I suppose you could do that, but that's really avoidance coping. You're just going to constantly have to navigate your life avoiding everything that makes you stressful so that you won't act out on your addictions. It's not really a great strategy. He said a better strategy is just to walk <laughs> your normal way and when you encounter the donut store, stand in front of it and then pay attention to the feelings that arise rather than staring only at the donut and learn to tolerate and be with the craving, the feelings of physiological uh, changes that happen when we uh, uh, encounter that which we crave, to be with it and to learn to slowly not only observe it, but to, to allow it to arise and pass. So that's one literally rich way that we could go about making significant changes in our life. Every time we are uh, prone to any kind of addictive behaviors, any kind of uh, avoidance strategies, any kind of times where we become uh, prone to reactive statements or uh, getting short-tempered, to stop and simply pay attention to what's going on beneath it and to give it awareness until it passes and then take action. So that's one way. And in uh, cognitive behavioral therapies, that's often linked with exposure therapies, where you just expose people to those situations wherein they act in ways that are unsatisfactory, and you get them to be able to hold the underlying feelings and allow the underlying feelings to pass so that they don't have to be driven into any specific repetitive behavior. But the Buddha offers a teaching that is, I think, far more profound and is far, uh, in my work, uh, far more useful. So it's called Yoniso Manasikara, which means appropriate attention, and that's spelled Y-O-N-I-S-O, M-A-N-A-S-I-K-A-R-A. Uh, appropriate attention, wise attention, and it leads to something called Yatha Bhutta Nanadasana. Please don't write that down. It's, uh, it simply means seeing things as they really are. And so I'm going to read you from one of the most, I would posit, important suttas in the canon. And the Buddha, in his sort of rather running it over too quickly way, which he does when he has really kind of bombshell things. He kind of drops them in and moves along and doesn't say, you know, ta-da, I've just given you this amazing tool. He just kind of marches along, but I'm going to stop and really investigate it and explore it with you. So he says, when the uninstructed person experiences a negative feeling, they crave pleasure. Why? Because they don't understand that there's any other way to respond. 
They fail to see that every experience in life has an allure, which is an asada, a drawback, adhanava, and an escape, nisarana. So he goes on to parse that a little bit. <coughs> and all of this is going to sound a little bit obvious, but if we really, I think, dive deep, it opens up some really interesting perspectives. Having been touched by that painful feeling, the normal individual resists and takes it personally, resenting painful experiences. In resisting taking personally and resenting painful experiences, an underlying tendency to resist and take things personally takes root in the mind. It becomes a habit. Every time we encounter a difficulty, a setback, a frustrating situation, somebody acts in a way we don't like, there is a uh, painful encounter, an interaction, we take it personally and we resist it and that becomes a tendency. When experiencing pleasant sensations, the normal individual clings to them, chases after them, and so Clinging and chasing after pleasure takes root in the mind. Furthermore, there becomes an underlying tendency to ignore all of life's neutral feelings and experiences. So we tend to brush through the routine, not paying attention. How many of us can walk into the shower and then the next thing we know the shower's ended or we drive to work and we're completely unaware of anything that happened during that drive because there were no unusual feelings in the body, we didn't pay attention. On the other hand, whenever there's something pleasant, the Buddha says, we tend to fixate on it and chase after it. So all of this, I think, so far is pretty obvious and, and uh, straightforward. But then he says, the individual doesn't see the drawbacks and alternatives to resisting pain, ignoring neutral experiences and clinging to pleasure. The drawbacks are such that a person becomes increasingly frustrated and frantic in their lives. And the escape is to observe life very closely and to see that all of these experiences are not only universal, they are also impermanent and therefore will pass on their own. In other words, while it seems totally natural and given that we should want to cling and draw out and constantly search after short-term pleasures and it seems completely natural that we should want to uh, avoid any difficult, stressful, uh, painful uh, experiences associated with uh, stress, that those tendencies have their drawbacks, which is they make us constantly unsettled. We're constantly rushing through our life, trying to avoid things that we associate with difficulty, trying to rush towards things that make us feel uh, happy and safe for a short term. And we tend to not pay attention when the underlying feelings are neutral. So I'd like to give some examples of uh, allures drawbacks and escapes and how they can might maybe help us change the perspective on our lives. What is the allure of worrying? We all worry 
and catastrophize to a certain degree, which means, I don't, I don't know about you, but uh, very often in life when I get news, the first thing that pops up in my mind is not everything that could go right <laughs> or well. I have a, uh, learned and patiently taught by my mother, I have an incredible capacity to visualize every single possible catastrophic outcome of any news. When I was very young, my mom was actually featured in this interview in the newspaper. It's kind of odd that she was, but there was her picture and a lot of people had it up, it was in the New York Times, and when I came home that day from school, I said, Mom, you didn't tell me that your picture was gonna be in the New York Times, and she said, in her, uh, with her, all her ancient wisdom, yes, that's what they do before they fire you. And <laughs> I had breached some solemn family politeness of talking about something good, and she quickly informed me uh, <laughs> that, that that's the way you greet any news in life, was you, you figure out, if it's good, you don't really talk about it because you have figured out every single positive, possible bad outcome that could, that could follow from it. So worrying gives us the illusion, the underlying allure of worrying is that it makes us feel prepared. It makes us feel that if we visualize everything bad, catastrophic, that could possibly happen, we feel, oh, well, I won't be caught off guard. So if I spend my life worrying, uh, I'll, I, at least I'll go through life without ever having some event complete me, completely catch me off guard. I won't, be, I won't go through all those pains of childhood when I got the present and the next present at Christmas and then the next thing I knew I was going through an unpleasant experience because I let my guard down. I didn't worry about what was coming next. A couple of others. And the most important thing is that the underlying allure most of the time is not that apparent. We're in, we don't tend to spend a lot of time reflecting on the underlying allures to repetitive behaviors. We tend to just uh, focus on the drawbacks of our symptoms. We all want to get rid of our worrying, but we don't take time to ever reflect on, well, why do I worry? What's the allure of worrying? And it's through understanding the allure of things that we can figure out escapes. We can then come, come about escapes, and I'll talk about that in a few moments. Food binging. I've worked with a lot of people who, uh, especially when they're alone, uh, often at night they come home and they binge on food and then they shame themselves. And th there becomes this cyclical pattern of loneliness, eating, feeling ashamed, and it creates the spiral because the more ashamed it creates more negative ideations and it makes it more and more likely to binge eat. And, but they generally, when we first start working, there's very little aware of what's, awareness of what's the underlying allure of binge eating. Now it's not just the pleasure of, 
of consuming food. Actually, I would posit that in many cases, the underlying allure I've found is that the safest times in childhood when we felt loved and cared for was when we were fed by our parents. And if we reach times in our adult life where we do not feel loved and cared for, then eating becomes a way of recreating the feeling of being loved, being cared about, being with people, being important to others. So the underlying hidden allure of binge eating very often is that it recreates the feeling of being loved and cared about, seen, being important to someone. And even though there's really no one else there very often, it still creates that feeling and that's what really matters, is it creates the feeling of being loved. So that's the underlying allure. So the drawback of, bin, of binging on food is pretty obvious. People are always aware of that. They always feel ashamed about it. They feel that not only does it take its toll on uh, health, but also nobody wants to be uh, driven by addictive tendencies. So it creates, but at least when we understand the allure, we can then figure out what the escape is. In the, the case of worry, the escape from worry, which makes us feel safe and prepared, is to reflect on all the times in life where we were caught off guard by unforeseen uh, catastrophes and we did okay. We didn't need to worry about it and we still survived. Not just thinking about it but reflecting on all those times where we got sudden horrific news or were caught off guard by a catastrophic event and we didn't fall apart simply because we didn't worry about it beforehand. To show the emotional mind that believes the only way we're safe is through worrying, to show it lovingly all the times in life that we've done just fine when we were caught off guard and hadn't pre-visualized the bad thing that happened. The escape from food binging is to every time we come home and we start to feel that urge to eat is of course to either go to an OA meeting or to call up a friend or to do something which makes us feel connected and loved that alleviates the underlying feeling of loneliness and disconnection. So it's only through knowing the allure, the underlying allure to, that drives our behaviors that we can begin to develop escapes or solutions in life. Let's look at a few more. Uh, body dysmorphia. Body dysmorphia is extremely common in my work. It's people who will look at some part of their body and believe that it's grotesque, misshapen, that they need to have plastic surgery and so forth. It's very, very common. And it becomes so common that people literally at times almost can't perceive their bodies in any other way than misshapen. It's very often one of the underlying mechanisms of uh, anorexia. So body dysmorphia, the underlying allure for it is if I blame my body, then all those painful rejections and abandonments I've experienced in life at least won't be about my personality or my self or who I am. 
I can blame it on my body, and that feels something I can somehow control easier than if I believe that all those rejections in life are happening because of something about me, who I am, my sense of humor, my way of looking at things, the way I think, or something even unforeseen. So that's the underlying, very often, lure, is that body dysmorphia, presents to us a way of explaining and holding extremely painful rejections. The drawback is of body dysmorphia is pretty obvious. It makes us feel terrible about the way we look and it drives us to take ever increasing um, spirals of actions to try to alleviate uh, things about ourselves that aren't even wrong or in no way should even be you know, addressed. The escape is once we understand the hidden allure of body dysmorphia, the escape is realizing, is of course with body dysmorphia, it's going into a one-on-one -on -one therapeutic alliance where the therapist gives nothing but unconditional love to the person they're working with. And slowly over time, that experience shows the person that there's nothing about their self or personality or identity or uh, anything about them that's unlovable. That it's, that any rejections have happened to them were not because of who they are. And once they get that consistent love and acceptance and care and attention, then the body dysmorphia almost invariably begins to subside. That's, it's an interesting uh, list of therapeutic uh, cases. You can read about it. Uh, <clears throat> I could go on. I have so many examples of it. Self-consciousness. Self-consciousness obviously is the belief if I constantly annotate everything I'm doing, I'll be less likely to do something that makes people hate me and run away. And that's the underlying allure for it. The drawback of self-consciousness is it makes virtually every single social event uh, you know, unbearable because we're sitting there evaluating everything. We, Why did I say that? Holy shit. That wasn't funny. Why did I say that joke? Why am I talking about this? Blah, 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 blah. That self-consciousness can make any sing single interaction or group experience miserable. And obviously, the alternative to self-consciousness is to report to friendly people the underlying feelings that you're experiencing in any social gathering so that the thing that you're trying to conceal is shown to other people and they will alleviate the fear that there's something you could do that will make them hate you and run away. Self-criticism, the underlying allure is that it keeps us motivated and that if we weren't self-critical, we'd lie in bed and turn into slugs and never get anything done and that our lives would be wasted away. And the drawback is pretty obvious. If you don't know what the drawback of self-criticism or self-consciousness is, I, I don't know where to, <laughs> I don't know what to say. They're amongst the most miserable experiences of life. Obviously, the, uh, the escape from self-criticism is to develop, I did this, I, and this is literally a true story. I uh, literally, with a Buddhist teacher, <laughs> years and years and years ago, developed certain days of the week where I was not allowed to criticize myself at all. 
And then other days of the week where I was allowed to criticize myself as much as I wanted, go all in on it. I remember Tuesdays and Thursdays, I think, with Chodo were the days that I wasn't allowed, because it was only two days a week that I could manage not bombarding and giving myself the lashes of self-criticism all the time. And when they would come up, I'd go, yes, I see you, but it's Tuesday, you have to come back on Wednesday. <laughs> I even at times had to resort to having a journal so I would at least have 15 minutes of, of just excoriating self-criticism that I'd write down even on Tuesdays and Thursdays so that I could continue through those days without beating myself up. And of course, slowly over time, the experience that in fact not giving in to self-criticism, I still got out of bed, I still got things done, and in fact, my mind became a hell of a lot more pleasant. So in every case, understanding that unconscious allure, the unconscious emotional reason that drives our uh, repetitive tendencies is essential. If all we try to do is shame or punish ourselves or reason or logic with ourselves, it will never work because all of those things are cognitive and cognitive thoughts arrive after our physiological Vedana, the feelings that drive the behaviors. And all they do, shaming, logicking, reasoning with ourselves uh, is they add more stress and they make it more likely that we will be drawn to the addictive behaviors, the avoidance tendencies of avoiding social situations, the shutting down, the, and so forth. It doesn't work, it doesn't work. But fortunately, the practice of beginning to see the underlying justifications, allures, and then finding, finding spiritual uh, substitutions or alternatives that alleviate the underlying need, the underlying be emotional belief is, uh, works. Um, there's a whole therapeutic modality today called coherence therapy. Coherence therapy is done by a guy named Bruce Ecker, and it's essentially entirely, the entire modality is based on finding the emotional beliefs beneath all of our symptoms, viewing each symptom not as a mistake, but as something that's an, a, a mistaken solution in our lives. For example, again, binge eating is not a mistake. It's an attempt to solve loneliness very often. Again, when we eat, it makes us feel loved, seen, cared for. And so when we understand that, then we can find from that, knowing that emotional belief that justifies it, we can find something that addresses that emotional belief, connect with people every time we are likely to binge eat. That's a very simplistic example. I'm going to bring to you a much more subtle one in a moment. Bruce Ecker's coherence therapy is based actually on hard neuroscience provided to us by the great Joseph Ledoux and his team. I can't remember his partner, what her name is, but they both um, at NYU, they studied the way emotional beliefs in the unconscious, the right hemisphere are formed, and they found that 
that we can change any underlying emotional belief when they're activated. Trying to logic or reason when we're not activated, they found doesn't work. But when we are in the presence of that impulse to binge eat or to shame ourselves or to um, uh, something worry or to give in to the catastrophizing tendencies or the body dysmorphia fixations. When we are, we have, we've activated that underlying emotional belief that these, these proclivities will somehow rescue us, when those proclivities are hot, that's actually the time that we can change the circuits. They've shown this with war veterans who literally at home mistake the sounds of truck backfiring with bombs going off. It's when they are actually in the activated state of feeling like they're back at Afghanistan that you can actually talk them through what they're experience, experiencing, change the way they're relating to the sensations and actually give them an alternative way to respond. Ecker's wonderful observation is that the underlying allure and the drawback of each behavior can only be maintained is if we're only aware of one of them at a time. The reason why all addictions stay in place in our life is because we always keep the underlying allure, the justification, unknown. If we can raise it to the level of consciousness and show this underlying allure that its emotional beliefs are not true, not tell it, but show it, then he shows over time people's addictive, their behaviors or symptoms, all of the, the struggles that they have with certain tendencies in life begin to mitigate on their own. You have to show that inner child that deeply believes that the only way to survive in the world is avoiding difficult social situation, is blaming their bodies every time they get rejected, is addictively eating food every time they feel lonely, is uh, turning on Netflix every time they also feel alone, and so forth. We have to show that inner child, not only does this not work, but that there are other ways but we have to be conscious of these underlying beliefs and patiently show them what the Buddha called escapes. We have to make the unconscious conscious. As he says, in quotes, incompatible beliefs can only be maintained if they are compartmentalized and kept unconscious. And I would propose that in the Buddha's Yonisa Manasikara, that's exactly what he's saying. It's when we become aware of the underlying allure of chasing after short-term sensual pleasures and avoiding difficult, painful experience. When we become aware of the underlying beliefs that justify those behaviors and show them kindly, patiently, that they lead to suffering and that there's other ways that we can make substantial changes. Quick example, famous case study, Young woman in her early 30s, living in London, uh, had gotten engaged. She lived with her mother. 
every time her partner suggested that before they get married, they actually cohabitate, which would mean she'd have to leave living with her mother. Uh, she would freak out, run into a room, close the door, and threaten to break up the engagement. Well, that's not a healthy way to respond to a suggestion. And the thing about it is you, uh, the mother was all in favor, too, of her daughter going and cohabitating with her partner, who the mother liked and believed was a very wonderful person. But she couldn't do it. So she went into coherence therapy, the therapist didn't take this fear of leaving home and cohabitating with her partner as a mistake. He knew that it, well, there was an underlying emotional reason behind it. So instead of shaming her, logicking with her, telling her it would be okay, doing any of the ways we, our friends would normally approach it, he said, okay, let's just free associate. What do you associate what comes to mind when you think of uh, leaving home. And at first, all the good things, the obvious things that she wanted came to mind. Well, it would be great. I could be with my partner. I could finally no longer be stuck at home. But none of those really mattered. He was trying to find the underlying emotional justification for staying at home for not going into cohabitating. So he's waiting for her to say not all the good things that would happen if she left, but he was waiting to find the fear of leaving home. What was justifying the staying at home? What was justifying the fear? What was the underlying allure? Finally, she said, after a lot of free association, out of her mouth blurted the statement, I believe if I leave home, my mother will die. At that moment, the therapist knew that he had encountered the underlying justification or emotional belief. Why? Because the underlying emotional belief that justifies our behaviors will make no sense to our logical mind, but it will make complete emotional sense to the unconscious. The things, like for instance, the idea that binge eating alleviates loneliness makes no logical sense. And yet, it makes complete emotional sense when we understand that eating creates the feeling of being loved and cared for. When we know that, then we understand. So in this case, when he, the therapist knew, oh, you believe your mother will die if you leave home. And then he explored that. He had her free associate. And she got in contact with this very old memory of when she was very young, her violent father beginning to attack her mom. And whether this memory was actually true or constructed, it doesn't matter. It was an emotional belief. And as a little girl, she remembered that she stood between her mother and her father and that her father, seeing her in front of her mother, made the father turn around and leave. And so she developed the emotional belief that staying home was the only thing keeping her mother alive. Do you follow? So even though it no longer made any sense in adult life, the need to stay home made no sense. Logically, it made complete emotional sense. We all have two hemispheres. 
a left and a right, and while the left always insists on logic, the right emotional hemisphere cares about experience and believes all experiences to be true until they are shown otherwise. It is immune to logic or reason. It simply goes by what it's been seen or shown by life to be true. So she was shown by life in her early years that staying around kept her mother safe. And so the therapist then had her write out on a piece of paper, I believe that if I leave home, my mother will die. I am keeping my mother alive. He didn't write, have her write this down to shame her or ridicule her. He had her write it down and carry it around so that she was aware of the underlying belief. And then every time she and her partner would talk about her leaving, she'd read that while she was activated so the underlying emotional belief became very, very hot and active. And then she would look for all the examples in her life that could show her that her mother was now safe. Her father no longer lived there. Her mother was in a new partnership with a new safe person. Her mother had lots of friends and connections. In fact, in the case study, it turns out her mother even lived next door to a police station. So. She showed herself all of the actual facts of life. She showed that in her child, all of the facts that, and very patiently over time, I think it was about a month, not that long, she developed the capability to leave home and move in with her partner. Because she, instead of logicking, reasoning, trying through sheer force of will, she simply needed to address that unseen hidden emotional belief that was justifying her behaviors. So the two ways we can do this are by free association, uh, as in that example, or by symptom deprivation. Symptom deprivation is pretty simple. Uh, if somebody has a proclivity to binge eat, you have them visualize them right at that moment when they're about to reach for the bag of cookies, and you say, okay, I want you to visualize that you go to the cupboard and the cookies aren't there and there's no more ice cream. What do you feel? And what they feel at first is stressful, uncomfortable, but then you keep having them reach down deeper. What do you feel? What are you becoming aware of? And what will eventually they'll get in touch with is I feel lonely not taken care of, there's nobody there buying me food, there's no one looking after me. When you get there, again, you found the underlying emotional belief that food, eating equals care, no food, not eating equals absence of care, absence of love. So our job, if we want to practice Yonisa Manasikara, is to look very deeply into what is driving our unwanted, self-destructive, frustrating behaviors, to become aware of those emotional beliefs that we're, we haven't yet connected with, and then to come up with meaningful, kind, compassionate alternatives that will take care of that inner child that deeply believes that it has to do what it's been doing to survive in the world. And so that's what we're going to do now with our meditation.
Oops. So finding a comfortable position And again, just let a sense of balance starting from the top of the head, being aligned with the shoulders, the shoulders in line with the hips. And if you have good balance, you don't need to really put very much effort into sitting. Balance does all the work for you. If your head has a tendency of slouching, just do that old trick of tilting your head back like you're looking at a very tall building. And that generally keeps people's heads from slouching. And when our heads are in line with the body, it's easier to become aware of the body. So I like to start my meditations with those old three breaths. I don't know when I started doing this, but it's become ingrained now. <laughs> so take a nice full, complete in-breath and lift your shoulders up like you're trying to touch your ears and then hold it, hold it, hold it, and then drop with a full out-breath and like they weigh each a ton and just let them fall by the wayside. And then second deep breath, tightening the abdominal muscles as tight as you can. Tight, tight, tight. This is the vagal vagus nerve you're tightening. And then breathe out. Soft belly. Soft belly deactivates the old vagal vagus highway, which informs your mind that you are in a safe place. And then the high vagal vagus highway is the facial nerve, so tighten those up when you breathe in. And you're telling the right hemisphere, I'm in a safe space when you release it. So you've just informed a lot of the underlying emotional processes of the brain that you are in a safe place by doing those three simple activities, and it also helps relax the body a little bit. Great. And now take a moment to just survey your body and see if there's anything kind and compassionate you can do for yourself right now. Can you take a nice stretch? Can you change the any tight clothing? Can you uh, change anything in the way your feet are folded, your hands are being held. Is there anything nice you can do for yourself? If nothing comes to mind, just... a wish of... saying intention of ease, inner peace. We'll just take a few minutes of breathing and then we'll move directly into the 
practice. So just find your breath and your body. If your mind is jumping about, you might want to for a little while commandeer the breath, extend the lengths of the out-breath. That tends to settle the mind. If you're feeling tired, sleepy, full in-breaths and hold them for a few extra beats before relieving them. You can even open up one eyelid with each out-breath and then close it again. But the goal is to let go of fiddling with the breath and just to find a natural breathing pattern and just observe it. I like to suggest counting one on the in-breath, two on the out, three on the in, four on the out, and so forth up to seven, and then counting back down, six on the out, five on the in, four on the out, etc. 